Our news comes from the Savannah Courier and the Memphis Appeal. The most expert counterfeiter, Ben Boyd, polygamist convicted, a mob in Monroe, Louisiana, cured of lunacy, desperation and hunger, barn burner captured, the Greenbush Holocaust, and fatal ending of a drunken orgy. A year of crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee, focuses today on the 18th of February, 1886. Please note that some articles use language considered offensive by today's standards. Ben Boyd, History of the Most Expert, Coney Man in the World. Do I know any counterfeiters? Well, I used to know one, said Captain Patrick Tyrell of the Government Secret Service. He smiled knowingly at his, this confession. He took off his glasses, folded his hands across his stomach, leaned back in his chair. Who is he? Why, Ben Boyd, who was sent down for 10 years in 1875. He is an Illinois man and lived in Fulton when I arrested him. He was the partner of old Nell Striggs, who was taken at Centrilla on the same day Boyd was taken at Fulton. It was my privilege to run down and locate both of these men, and I considered that their conviction was a body blow to counterfeiting. Boyd had many aliases. He was born in Cincinnati in 1834. His brother was an engraver, and Ben learned the art of him. He got into bad company, however, and also completed his education as a coney man when he met Nat Kinsey. Nat cut the $100 greenback counterfeit plate in 1864, bills from which escaped detection by the best experts. Ben engraved his first good counterfeit plate before he was of age. He soon became the associate of all the fine workers in his line and was the pet of all of them. He and Pete McCartney were arrested at Mattoon in 1865 and lodged in jail in Springfield. About this time, a woman named Allie Ackerman, a dealer of McCartney's, was taken at Springfield. In her traveling bag was found $30,000 in representative money. Ben Boyd managed to get out of this scrape and secured the release of Allie Ackerman by giving up a plate belonging to McCartney. In the old-time workings of the service, counterfeiters were often given their liberty by turning over their plates, but this easy way of doing business has been abandoned. It did not take them long to get new plates, and they had to be looked after a second time at least. When we get them now, we try to take care of them. Well, Boyd married Alice Ackerman, and they resided for some time in Decatur. By this time, he and his pals were doing a heavy business in the queer. His skill made him most serviceable to the fraternity of Coney men. He was very wary and most fortunate in his seclusion, and the product of his plates was in circulation for years. It finally became imperatively necessary to break up the gang of which Boyd was the life. I met Elmer Washburn, chief of the Secret Service, at the Palmer House on February the 5th, 1875. We talked the matter over at length, and I was put to work on the case. When I left the chief that night, he told me that if I was successful, the backbone of counterfeiting in this country would be broken. Well, it would take me a long time to tell you the particulars of work in the case, but I located Boyd in June 1875 in Fulton. He had just moved there from LeClaire, Iowa. It soon became evident to me that he had begun work. I had a conference with Chief Washburn, his assistant James J. Brooks, now chief, and Detective John McDonald. We laid a plan to capture Boyd and Driggs October 21st. At 9 o'clock in the morning of that day, we approached Boyd's house. I was to lead by entering the front gate and going around to the back door. Brooks was to follow at a distance of 20 feet, and McDonald in the rear about 100 feet to bring up at the front door. All this was carried out with military precision. When I was a short distance from the house, a man drove rapidly up to the door and cried, Does B.T. Wilson live here? 
I imagined this to be a signal to alarm the inmates of the house, and I hurried on. In a moment, I saw a man escape from the house. From his appearance, I believed him to be Nat Kinsey, Boyd's old instructor, but we didn't want him and let him go. I feared that any delay on his account would defeat the main capture. I entered the kitchen from the rear door and passed into the dining room. Here, Mrs. Boyd confronted me, and although she had never seen me and had no reason to think that I was a government officer, she seized me by the collar and tried to hold me. I took hold of her wrist and threw her from me, calling to Brooks to take charge of her. Hurrying to the stairs, I met Boyd in his shirt sleeves, about to come down, and placed him under arrest. He made no resistance and with considerable agitation said, Who are you? When I told him, he simply said, I have heard of you. I then searched the house, and this gave me active employment for six hours. In the room upstairs from which Boyd had come, when I surprised him, I found every evidence of the work of a counterfeiter. There was a workbench in the room, littered with a large number of engraver's tools. On the table was a genuine $20 note of the National Bank of Dayton, Ohio. Near this was a partly engraved plate of it. In another room, I found a large dry goods box. On emptying it, I found nothing but rags, but on tipping the box, about one of the boards dropped out and revealed a mortise from which fell a plate engraved for printing the center back of a $20 national banknotes. The border or rim to match this was the unfinished plate on the workbench. I asked Mrs. Boyd if there was any money in the house. She reluctantly said there was, but refused to tell what it was. I told her I would give her half an hour to think about it, and I then went out and telegraphed Chief Washburn. While I was gone, Mrs. Boyd offered McDonald $1,000 to let her take what she wanted from the house and keep it quiet. McDonald told me of this when I returned. I finally found a box in the bedroom, across one end of which was nailed a cleat, presumably to serve as a handle. On breaking the box to pieces, I found that the cleat was hollow, and in it was good money and bills in the amount of over $7,000. While I was working on this box, I noticed Mrs. Boyd adroitly dropping a piece of carpet over a small box. I turned my attention to it, and on breaking it into pieces, found the front and back plates for printing the $100 greenback. These plates were stuck together with putty and covered with waterproofing. The entire party left for Chicago that night. While on the train, Boyd said to me, Tyrell, you are not long in the Secret Service, are you? I told him I was not. And he replied, I thought if you were an old member of the service, you would take the property now in your possession and let me skip out the back door. Boyd and his wife were tried in the United States courts in Chicago on January the 19th and 20th, 1876, and Boyd got 10 years imprisonment. His wife was charged with being his accomplice, but the court discharged her on the ground that she was Boyd's wife and it was her duty to obey and protect him. His imprisonment was a heavy blow to the Coney men in West and South. To be sure... They could, still, they could still get the queer, but they were no longer next the plate, and the stuff they got was poor. And then they had to do business with middlemen, and the profits were small. The most desperate efforts were made from many quarters to affect Boyd's release, and one of those efforts was most ghastly in its character and occasioned worldwide comment. I referred to the attempt made in the winter of 1876 to steal the remains of President Lincoln, the gang which tried to carry out this villainous scheme was organized in Lincoln under the leadership of a St. Louis counterfeiter. In case they succeeded, their terms for the return of the body were to be $200,000 in cash and the pardon of Ben Boyd. A disreputable woman in Springfield learned of the job and reported it to the police in time to prevent it from being carried out. The story was from the Chicago News. We'll be right back after this break. 
Our next stories come from the Memphis Appeal for the 18th of February, 1886. Polygamous convicted. Salt Lake, Utah, February the 17th. Thomas Birmingham and Jason Raymond, convicted of unlawful cohabitation, were sentenced in the district court today to six months imprisonment and to pay fines of $300 each. Abraham H. Cannon took the witness stand when his case was called. Upon being asked whether two women were his wives and whether he had lived with them, he replied, They are, thank God. I have lived with them as charged. He was convicted. Henry Dunmoody pleaded guilty. He promised obedience to the law and sentence was suspended. Hanged by a mob, Monroe, Louisiana, February the 17th. George Robinson Colored, charged with having shot and killed Millard F. Parker of this city on the night of the 11th of last December, was taken from the parish jail last night by a party of 100 men and hanged near the scene of the murder. Usalt Dudley Cured, New York, February the 17th. Counsel for Mrs. Usalt Dudley, who shot O'Donovan Rosa a year ago, is authority for the statement that she is cured, that a certificate to that effect will be sent to the state superintendent of lunacy who will take her before a Supreme Court judge and obtain an order for her release from the insane asylum. Driven to desperation by want and suffering, New York, February the 17th. Alexander Gere, aged 40 years, was arrested here today while climbing over the East River Bridge promenade. His purpose was to commit suicide by jumping from the structure. He said that he wanted to die because of his inability to provide for his wife and four children, who ranged from three weeks to eight years of age. They lived at number 178 Exit Street. An officer who went there to investigate found the prisoner's wife and their little ones crowded in a small room in the rear of the building. They had eaten nothing for two days. Barn burner captured a man who has destroyed $600,000 worth of property. New York, February the 17th. One of the landmarks of Berkshire County, Massachusetts, was Mr. Henry W. Levitt's big barn at Great Barrington. It extended five stories above the ground and two below. Under one roof were stable, carriage house, sawmill, planting mill, and storehouse for farm produce. The barn cost $120,000 and was insured for $25,000. On the evening of July 7, 1885, it was destroyed by fire. Mr. Levitt employed private detectives but could not find the incendiaries. Finally, Detective Price of this city was put on the case. Price suspected Michael O'Connell, who left two weeks before the fire occurred because his wages were not increased. O'Connell got work as a laborer upon a new barn which was being built at Great Barrington for Mrs. Hopkins, the widow of the famous California millionaire. The lady's house cost between $2 million and $3 million and the barn $500,000. Dr. Crane, Mrs. Hopkins' superintendent, reproved O'Connell for some neglect of, of duty and upon being given an insolent reply, struck the laborer with his cane. O'Connell tried to shoot Dr. Crane and a warrant was issued for his arrest. The officers found O'Connell barricaded in his house. He fired out of the windows and wounded one of them and escaped a rear door. Several times he stealthily returned to visit his family. All this Detective Price learned during his vacation but he failed to get any trace of O'Connell. Last December, through observations at the Great Barrington Post Office, Mr. Levitt located O'Connell in Brooklyn, where his wife and children had joined him. Detective Price found that O'Connell was working as a laborer in South Brooklyn and made his acquaintance. Early in January, Mrs. Hopkins' barn was burned. The crime was as great a sensation as Mr. Levitt's blaze and set the whole state of Massachusetts agog. 
Price then employed a young man to ingratiate himself into O'Connell's confidence and to be with him night and day. A few days ago, the young man brought O'Connell into a liquor store in 7th Avenue where Price was. Mr. Patterson said that he owned the store and pretended to be drunk. He talked dog and said that he knew where some fine pups might be got cheap if anybody had nerve enough to burn a barn. At last, O'Connell hinted that he would undertake the job for consideration. But you have had no experience, objected Price. Oh, yes, I have. And O'Connell soon satisfied Mr. Patterson that what he didn't know about arson was not worth knowing. A short time later, O'Connell was brought to a room which Price had hired. A door leading to an adjoining apartment had been removed, drapery put in its place, and a wardrobe stood in front of the drapery. In the outer room, Mr. Levitt and a shorthand writer were posted while Price conversed with O'Connell and the young man mentioned. Gradually, the labor betrayed his secret and did not stop until he had confessed to both the Great Barrington fires. On Monday, an officer from Great Barrington arrived with a warrant for O'Connell's arrest on a charge of shooting the officer on August the 31st. It was agreed that Price and O'Connell would burn a barn back of Fort Lee last night. They examined the place on Monday and had all their plans laid. O'Connell came to Price's room last night at dusk. The stenographer and Mr. Levitt were behind the curtain. Now we had better go, said Price at 9 o'clock. They went out and Price told O'Connell to go to 7th Avenue and 31st Street while he, the detective, went for the horse and buggy. At that place, Detective Dunlop was waiting and arrested O'Connell. Under each arm, the prisoner had a wad of straw, oakum, and fuse to fire the Fort Lee barn. The value of the property in Great Barrington destroyed by O'Connell was about $600,000. The Greenbush Holocaust. Suspicions of a horrible crime increased by later developments. Chicago, Illinois, February the 17th. A dispatch from Plymouth, Wisconsin regarding the Holocaust at Greenbush yesterday says, The Yule House burned like a paper box, and beneath the thin sheet of ashes and charred timbers in the basement were the remains of seven people. There was nobody to account for the tragedy or explain its origin except the hired man who was the only member of the household to escape. He was regarded in the community as a vicious character, and when he related that he knew nothing about the Holocaust more than that he was awakened by smoke and contrived to make his way into the yard from his room in the second story, he was suspected, and he was placed under surveillance as the probable perpetrator. The smoking ruins were hurriedly searched by the crowd, and they found what were supposed to be the remains of all the victims. The remains were almost impossible of identification, being mere cinders of bodies and calcined bones. What are supposed to be the remnants of Mrs. Ebel and her children were found in an intricate mass as if they had huddled and died together. The remains of the younger Mr. Yule were in a position indicating that he had fallen in another room. Fragments of Mrs. Kinney and the elder... Uh, Yule were found as they would have naturally fallen in their beds. There is a wide diversity of theory and belief as to whether the fire concealed a crime. Many are inclined to regard the finding of the bodies as related sufficient evidence that the fire was accidental and so swift that the inmates were unable to escape from it. It is thought that Mrs. Kinney and old man Yule were suffocated, but that they might have been assassinated in bed nobody attempts to deny. The relative position of the remains are made to justify the suspicion of foul play by those who are demanding an inquiry. It is possible that the seven people were killed, the premises soaked with kerosene, and then set on fire. That the house should have burned as quick as it did without the application of some inflammable liquid would be as mysterious as is at present the death of its occupants. 
Greenbush is a little town on the Plank Road, seven miles from here. It is destitute of railway and telegraph communication with the outside world, and the details of the tragedy are coming in slowly. Pierced by a bullet, the probable fatal ending of a drunken orgy. The effort of Sergeant Kunholtz to quell a disturbance and its result. About 7 o'clock yesterday evening, a drunken row occurred at the Pacific House, 210 Main Street, which resulted in the probably fatal shooting of A.S. Walsh, whose condition at midnight was so critical that very little hope is entertained of his recovery. At the hour named, the noise of a disturbance in the saloon gathered a curious crowd about the door of the place, but no one seemed to think it his business to interfere, and when a few minutes afterward a pistol was fired in the place, the crowd was augmented to several hundred excited people. The noise of the shot was almost immediately followed by the crush of glass and Sergeant Kunholtz, grappled with Cooley, tumbled through the doors and out upon the pavement. About this time, a second shot was heard, and Constable Garvey, with turnkey Baker, put in an appearance. They immediately went to the assistance of the sergeant, and in a little while succeeded in arresting a man named Frank H. Cooley, with whom he was engaged, and another named R. N. Brantley, who had been interfering with the officer. Three others who were engaged in the row were looked for but could not be found. Brantley and Cooley were lodged in the station house, and it was a fully a quarter of an hour before it was known that anyone had been shot. Inquiry was at once made, and Walsh was found at number 40 Washington Street, shot through the left lung and ball ranging upward, the passing out of the left shoulder. As Sergeant Kunholtz entered the room, Walsh remarked, That is the man who shot me, I believe, but I don't think he intended to. When questioned further, he said he could not be sure who shot him, but he did not blame the sergeant for having drawn his pistol when he did. His brother, L.M. Walsh, who was a witness to the affair, said he was surprised that Kunholtz waited as long as he did before drawing his pistol. Sergeant Kunholtz, who was seen by an appeal reporter shortly after the difficulty occurred, made the following statement. A little before 7 o'clock, Frost, who keeps the Pacific House, called me in as I was passing to suppress a row which he said was brewing in his saloon. I went in at once and found a crowd of five men, one of them a powerful young fellow named Cooley, being especially violent. I walked up to him and told him he would have to be quiet I would, or I would have to arrest him. He grabbed me by the collar, tearing it, as you see, and I grappled with him, but he was too strong for me and I found I could do nothing with him. Three or four of the crowd encouraged Cooley, who became more violent every moment and refused to listen to reason. I called on the crowd to aid me, but none of them seemed dispersed to do so, and Squire Millard finally said he would help. The moment he called hold of Cooley, Brantley struck him a sounding blow, nearly knocking him to the floor. The excitement in the saloon was very great at the time, and I found that I must take some decisive action. I told Brantley if he would agree to take Cooley to the station house, I would turn him over to him. Brantley said, All right and I had no sooner released the man that he sprang at me, peeling the skin from the side of my face and kicking me in the stomach. I grappled with him again, and Millard came, toward, came to my assistance, but was the second time knocked down by Brantley. Expecting every moment to be killed, I retreated a step or two and drew my pistol with the intention of shielding Cooley, but the crowd jumped at me and the ball lodged in the wall. Cooley immediately sprang at me, grasping my pistol by the barrel. We crashed through the glass doors and out on the pavement. Another shot was immediately fired. Garvin and Baker came up just then, and we took charge of Cooley and Brantley. As we were starting away, Mr. Lacey, who keeps the stable next door to the station house, picked up my pistol from the sidewalk and handed it to me. I gave it at once to Captain O'Haver, and only one chamber of the five had been discharged, so it was plain someone else had fired the second shot. 
It was fully 15 minutes afterward before we knew that anyone had been shot. The sergeant's statement is corroborated by a number of witnesses, the general opinion being that Brantley, in trying to shoot Kunholtz, shot Walsh instead. Several pistols were flashed during the row, and one was afterward found with an empty barrel by Detective Pride on the floor of the saloon. The ball fired by Kunholtz was found embedded in the wall. The wounded man is unmarried, about 26 years of age, and rather reckless. Kunholtz is a careful officer and has the confidence of his superiors. Scared into matrimony, a boy captured by a woman old enough to be his mother. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, February the 17th. A youth of 17 named William Saunders of number 4132 Ludlow Street was the defendant in a suit before Magistrate Smith at the Central Station today in which a woman given the name of Elizabeth Saunders and claiming to be his wife charged him with desertion and refusal to support her. When the prisoner was placed in the dock, he was found to be but 17 years of age while his alleged wife looked as if she was on the shady side of 40. I am 26 years old, said the woman, and was married last November to that man, pointing to the prisoners, whose youthful appearance and look of imbecility caused the magistrate to smile. We were married but two days when he told me to go to the almshouse and live. I went and have been there ever since. When Saunders was placed on the stand, his dilemma was plainly noticeable. After considerable questioning, he told the magistrate that Father Garvey of St. James Church had married them and that they did not have a license. I didn't want to marry her, said Saunders with an effort, but she scared me into it. Tell me how it was done, said Magistrate Smith. She came to our house and occupied my room three nights and then told me if I didn't marry her, the devil would get me. The young man refused to comply with her request, whereupon she concocted a plan which so worked on his enfeebled mind that he was at last consented. From the time of his refusal to marry the woman, his life became a burden. The winds that whistled around the house at night and the banging shutters and rattling were depicted to him to be the work of the devil. The woman said that the devil was going wild, and if he did not consent to a speedy marriage, the devil only knew what he would do. Still, he refused, and the tortures increased. His door would open and shut without any apparent agency, and an invisible bell awakened him from his sleep. Apparitions floated through his chambers, and when his additional evidence of the devil's handiwork was seen by the boy, he sat up in bed, and with his hair on end, mentally resolved as if he was spared until morning, that he would end his persecutions by marrying the woman who, he was now satisfied, had entered into a compact with his satanic majesty. His vow was forgotten when daylight appeared, but the woman painted his punishment in such horroring colors that he accompanied her to the priest and was married. The magistrate, upon hearing Saunders' story, discharged him, saying, The marriage is invalid. No license was procured. The boy is a minor and feeble-minded. Addressing the woman, he continued, Madam, you had better go back over Scullykill. You've lost your husband. Father Garvey was not present during the hearing, but appeared shortly afterward and explained to Magistrate Smith that while the couple had no license, the woman had told him a story which he thought justified him in marrying them. He was admonished to be more careful in the future and told that a civil action would probably be brought against him. The St. Louis Streetcar Strikers, St. Louis, Missouri, February the 17th. The cases against the strikers charged with riot during the streetcar troubles last fair week have dragged along in court now for four months. Yesterday, Judge Noonan took up the case against Thomas Suchiban, which it was thought was the strongest of them all. He was alleged to have participated in an attack upon a union line car to have broken in the window and broken open the money box. The case was fought very hard on both sides before a jury, which brought in a verdict of not guilty. 
there have been few convictions out of the large number of cases brought before the court. Death of a Negro Centurion Reading, Pennsylvania, February the 17th. Thomas N. Jackson Colored, who was found in his hut in the hills of Union Township, badly frozen, died at the county hospital yesterday. There is undoubted evidence that Jackson was 104 years old. Older, over 70 years ago, he was in the employ of General Jackson on the latter's plantation in Tennessee. This last section of the paper is titled City News. The chain gang was at work cleaning the streets yesterday. James B. Ward was arrested on his arrival from Nashville yesterday on a telegram from Detective R.M. Porter of that city accusing Ward of assault to murder. In the criminal court yesterday, John Harris was fined $50 and sentenced to four months for petty larceny. William Wiley, 60 days for the same offense, and Bob Wilkins, 30 days for assault and battery. And that's all the crime news for February the 17th, 1886. Please join us again for our next episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.